0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rim Dynasty, an NBA history podcast about the 2000s NBA. I'm your supreme leader, Lewis, a.k.a. Coach Lou, and today we're going to preview the 1999-2000 NBA season for the Atlantic Division of the Eastern Conference. Now, who is in the Atlantic Division, you're probably wondering? Well, if you've listened to the other three preview episodes, it is every team in the NBA that I have not talked about already. So let's go ahead and get started. Come on. You you think I'm not gonna read out the teams in the order that we're talking about them today? The New Jersey Nets, the Washington Wizards, the Boston Celtics, the New York Knicks, the Philadelphia Seventy Sixers, the Orlando Magic, and the Miami Heat. Starting with the worst, going up to first. And by the way, it, it's been a little while since the last episode. I, I recognize that. I decided I'd delay this one a little bit for two reasons. One, I was on two other podcasts this month. As you might expect, I do a lot of preparation for guest spots as well. So my You know, my research brain was really focused on the modern-day Memphis Grizzlies who are not doing very well. 0-3 with a loss to the Washington Wizards doesn't feel good. All the prep time that I did for those two podcasts feels just a little bit wasted because after I recorded the second one, Steven Adams went under the knife, changed the trajectory of the entire season. But anyway, I had two good conversations on the podcast that I was on. Hoops Temple with Nate, unfortunately Aaron was not available and then rob from the baseline bums podcast and bball archive on TikTok. So on Hoops Temple talking about the Grizzlies, Mavericks, Spurs, Rockets and Pelicans, the entire modern day Southwest Division. So that's on the Hoops Temple feed and on YouTube. And then later I was on State of the League with Jack aka Jokic Josar on TikTok. I had a great conversation with him just about the Grizzlies. Of course a lot of it is outdated since Steven Adams got surgery but go listen to those if you haven't already both episodes were really fun great conversations had all around and then the second reason that I delayed this a little bit was I had what I think is a great idea which is to make the dates that the episodes come out match up with the dates that the episodes are covering it it sounds really simple but it had not occurred to me until like a couple weeks ago so for example the next episode the first real episode of this show. It's going to cover what happened in the NBA from November 2nd through 6th of 1999. So I thought, hey, why don't I release that one sometime between November 2nd and November 6th of 2023? So that's what I'm going to do. I have a tentative schedule written out that I'd, I would like to be able to follow to get through the season, starting from the week that the season began in 99 to the day that the season ended in 2000, and have those dates you know, match up a little bit. I also have some March Madness time built in and a short break scheduled for my honeymoon in April. But I'm not going to release the schedule because I I want the games that we're covering each week to be kind of a surprise until, you know, a little bit ahead of time. There is a plan. There's a clear outline for every week. And I'm really excited for y'all to hear, you know, what I've got coming up with this show. But before we can get to the main show, we've got to finish the team previews. So let's get started with the New Jersey Nets. Coming into this year, they will be coached by Don Casey. He's entering his first full season as the Nets coach. Not his first season as a head coach overall, though. That was in 1990 with the LA Clippers. And Don Casey was the replacement for the deposed former head coach and general manager of the Nets, John Calipari. And as a Memphis Tigers fan, somebody who has been burned severely by Coach Cal, I'm very happy to report that he absolutely sucked running the show in East Rutherford, New Jersey. He was the coach and executive for two and a half seasons, finished with a 72-112 and record before being fired on March 15th, 1999. Beware the Ides of March. He did not listen to the soothsayer. But anyway, Calipari was a, a really young guy to be handed the reins to an entire franchise like that, and the players did not totally respect him, certainly didn't like being screamed at by a guy who was like a couple years older than them, had only ever coached in college before coming to the Nets. So when Don Casey was elevated to the head coaching position, the players were really happy. He was much older. He was in his early 60s, while Calipari was in his late 30s. Don Casey was a little bit more laid back. He'd been a former NBA player, so that certainly helps. Don Casey was never supposed to be the head coach permanently. The Nets were actually trying to get Phil Jackson to come to the Nets, but he went to the Lakers instead, so Don Casey was handed the reins full-time in the offseason. Now, Calipari did one thing right before he got fired that the Nets are pretty happy about coming into this season. And that is that four days before he got fired, he traded the injured point guard Sam Cassell in a three team trade involving the Milwaukee Bucks and the Minnesota Timberwolves. Cassell had gotten injured in the first game of the season, only played three more throughout the year, part of why the Nets were not very good in 1999. But they traded Cassell and got back in return Brooklyn's own, Stefan Marbury, who was not happy in Minnesota wanted his own team, hated sharing the spotlight with a great player like Kevin Garnett, wanted to be the sole great player and the best player on a team. So, buddy, let's see how that works out for you. But uh, just a couple games after Marbury came to New Jersey, the Nets fell to 3-17, and and Calipari got the axe. And although the Nets struggled with injuries all season, and that would continue on even after Marbury came to town, the team was able to do much better down the stretch. They went 13-17 and the rest of the way. But their poor start and some more key injuries that I'll talk about made this a little bit of a lost season for the Nets. They finished 16 and 34, 25th in offense and 20th in defense. But the Nets do feel like they have something to build off of here with the Marbury acquisition, some people eventually returning from injury, and the breakout performance from their second-year six-foot-ten forward Keith Van Horn, who was fifth in points per game in the '99 season at just under 22 points a game. He's one of the better offensive rebounders in the league, one of the better ball handlers at his size, and as a combo forward, he's able to drive right past opposing power forwards, or if he's matched up against a more traditional small forward, he's able to overpower him in the post. And He was the team's leading scorer in 1999, and along with Marbury, who was right behind him in scoring on the team, eighth in the league, that pair was the first pair of teammates to both be top 10 in points per game in the same season since Chris Mullen and Tim Hardaway in 1991, so very good company. So that tandem is something that the Nets are really excited to build around, and they're trying to do that, but unfortunately the building process is going to have to wait just a little bit until next year because they traded away their 99 first-rounder to get Marbury in the first place. That pick wound up being the sixth pick by the Timberwolves, Wally Serbiak. But they did have a second-round pick which they used to pick a center out of Northwestern, a guy named Evan Eschmeyer, and it's a really good thing they picked him because the center situation in New Jersey is really, really dire. It's not that they don't have a center because they actually have a ton of centers on the roster, but their best one is injured and they really don't know when he's going to come back. So longtime Nets big man, Jason Williams, who was an all-star in 1998, considered by many in the articles that I've read to be the best rebounder in the league, one of the best leaders in the league, really just a great center, despite his numbers not really being eye-popping. His all-star season, he had 13 points, 13 and half rebounds, and under one block per game, not much in the way of rim protection but Williams unfortunately suffered a freak injury on April 1st of 99 when Stephon Marbury inadvertently collided with him breaking his leg um, and so here's what the New York Times had to say about Williams injury and his recovery and the setbacks that now have him slated to return in January of 2000 last season before breaking his leg in a freakish collision with Marbury in a game against the Atlanta Hawks Williams played with an injured left thumb that later required surgery and an injured shoulder. His broken right leg, however, was by far the worst injury of his career. Doctors described it as something that would occur in a motorcycle accident, and there was doubt if he would ever play again. On April 2nd, Williams underwent nearly five hours of surgery in which Warren, who is the surgeon, inserted five screws and a plate to repair a displaced tibial plateau fracture and a partially torn meniscus. Williams and the Nets immediately predicted a return by this season's October training camp, but the Charismatic Center was not ready to play by then. The return date was then shifted back to the start of the regular season, November 2nd, and then finally to January 1st, 2000. So that's what the Nets are currently expecting, is for Williams to return in January, and in the meantime they were planning on starting their draft pick, Evan Eschmeyer, but Eschmeyer actually got injured as well. He ruptured his right pectoral muscle, so he will be out until January. So the Nets are really having to scramble to get a center, and unlike the Milwaukee Bucks in the last episode, they think that they've been able to find several stopgap options that will coalesce into a good center in the aggregate so they've asked michael cage who i'm hoping still has the jerry curl that he has in his photo on basketball reference to come out of retirement and play some for him he agreed but he says he's going to retire again after the season and then they also picked up george murasan the seven foot seven romanian center who was a free agent but played one game for the nets in the 99 season they re-signed him Michael Cage played most of his productive years with the Clippers and the Supersonics. Never an all-star or an all-defensive selection, but a tough defender and extremely effective rebounder. And then George MiraSon, the, the one game that he played for the Nets in 99 was the only NBA game he'd played in the last two seasons. After four seasons with the Washington Bullets, where he peaked in 1996 at 14.5 points, 9.5 rebounds, and three stocks per game, also a league-leading from the field that year. He had missed a ton of time with back injuries and knee injuries, missed the entirety of the 98 season, and then all but the final game of the 99 season recovering from those injuries. But the Nets are hoping to get some run out of him for the next two months while Jason Williams is expected to be out. In addition, they already have two guys on the roster they think could fill the role of starting center in the short term. Only one of them wants to, the guy who does not want to, Jamie Fike, is a six foot eight power forward who stepped in to start the final 14 games for the Nets and in that time absolutely exploded. After two seasons of bouncing around the league and averaging a total of three points and four rebounds per game, he averaged eight points and 13 rebounds per game in those 14 starts. Five and a half of the 13 rebounds offensive. And in those 14 games, the Nets went six and eight in that stretch, which is one of the best 14-game stretches of the Nets' season, so that is great. The only problem is he wanted to be a power forward instead because he, he couldn't really handle the physical toll that being a center took on his body. So the Nets are probably going to have to start a guy named Jim McIlvain, who has been a starting center in the league before for the Seattle Supersonics. Started almost every game he played for them in both the 97 and 98 seasons but only played about 17 minutes a game and averaged 3.5 points, 3.5 rebounds, about 2 blocks per game, though. So, I mean, in 17 minutes, that is pretty good. Unfortunately, though, McElvain was injured in training camp. It's the way it goes in New Jersey, I guess. Uh, Had to have a small surgical procedure on his left shoulder and has an irregular heartbeat. He is going to be ready to start the year, though. So like I said, very different situation from the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, they have a center they think will return who is an all-star caliber player, uh, and they have a ton of replacement-level centers on the roster that ideally are only going to have to hold down the fort for two months. If Jason Williams actually is ready to go by the start of January, that's only 30 games that they have to get out of you know, the collective of Michael Cage, George Mirasan, Jamie Fike, and Jim McElvain. And hopefully that is what will come to pass. But regardless, the Nets are uh, not really built around a dominant big man as it is. They're planning on getting the bulk of their contributions from Marbury, Marbury, from Van Horn, and then from KKKG. And I'm not talking about the Shah Rukh Khan film. Uh, the Nets play in Bergen County, not Middlesex County. I'm talking about the Nets' wing rotation. Carrie Kittles and Kendall Gill, a couple of slashing guards. Honestly, between Marbury, Kittles, Gill, and Keith Van Horn, It's really good that the Nets don't have a dominant post player because all four of those guys want to drive to the rim a bunch. Kendall Gill is entering his fifth season in New Jersey and is on a little bit of a decline. He's going to be 31 this season, had a pretty dismal shooting season in 99, shot under 40% from the field and had the lowest scoring average since he was a rookie at just under 12 points per game. He did average a career high and league-leading 2.7 steals per game in 99, so that's not bad at all. He's been the starter since he arrived in New Jersey and will continue to be, but this time at shooting guard, his natural position instead of small forward, which is kind of a bummer for Kerry Kittles, the Nets' 8th pick in the 96 draft. Kittles is coming into his 4th season and has started most of the games that he's played for the Nets, also is nominally a shooting guard, even when playing alongside Gill. But Kittles had the worst shooting season of his career as well, 37%. His first season shooting poorly from 3, his worst scoring season... And unfortunately, his season ended a little early with a knee injury that he had surgery for. So he will miss the start of the year and then plan on coming off the bench where he actually performs much better. He's not too happy to be coming off the bench, but his main concern is playing the same amount of minutes as he would be if he were starting, which Nets coach Dwayne Casey, which Nets coach Casey says is going to happen. Now, that knee injury for Kittles, his his teammates are kind of over his long, drawn-out injury recovery processes. Teammates have told the newspapers anonymously that he's taking his recovery way too slow. He always takes his recovery too slow. For example, a groin pole lingered for five weeks in his rookie year. He got surgery right after he got a contract extension one time and was on crutches for much longer than the Nets doctor prescribed for him. And he complained about knee pain for most of the 99 season, which he then actually injured and had to get surgery on. So that one seems like, a, seems like some fair complaints to me. But uh, Kittle says that he's good as new coming into the year, just needs a little more time to recover, and then he will be the sixth man. And at the three, this is probably the Nets' weakest position if you assume that Jason Williams will be back at center soon, because they're going to start Scott Burrell, NBA champion with the Chicago Bulls in 98. Not a major contributor to that. Did play every game of the 98 playoffs for them, though. And Burrell was pretty good in Charlotte early in his career, and in the 99 season, he went for six and a half points per game, four rebounds, a steal and a half. He's not—he's not a bad defender. He's just—he's—he's he's not a, an exciting name or anything. But he is a good basketball player. The other positions for the Nets are just a little bit better. Backing up Burrell will be Johnny Newman, who was very solid in his day, but is in his mid-thirties now, coming off a six-point-per-game season in Cleveland the year before, where he played every game. So altogether, the Nets have some pretty flashy players and a, a lot of scoring potential coming into the season. It's really just a matter of whether they can get healthy and stay healthy. Otherwise, this will just be like a a second consecutive loss season for them. They're in the in-between where they have a good enough roster that if they're able to get healthy, they'll make the playoffs. They're too talented to bottom out, so if they win like 30 games or so and are the 12th seed, they're going to need a major stroke of lottery luck to uh, majorly improve their situation. Wink wink. So the projected rotation for this team is going to be Stephon Marbury starting at the point, his backup, is the veteran point guard Sherman Douglas, a.k.a. General Sherman. Not that General Sherman. But he's the quintessential floor general point guard, so that'll be a good change of pace from the scoring guard, Marbury. Kendall Gill with Kerry Kittles backing him up at the two, Scott Burrell and Johnny Newman at the three, Keith Van Horn at the four with a little bit of Scott Burrell or Jamie Fike backing him up. And then at the center, whoever's healthy on any given day between Fike, George Mirison, Jason Williams, jim mckelvane michael cage and evan eschmeyer they have six centers on the roster which is insane now the last thing i want to say about this team is that with the new hand checking rules in effect the nets are expected to do really well because the majority of their offense is going to come from slashes to the rim by marbury van horn gill and kittles so the thinking is that they should be freed up to do that a little more or at the very least draw some more free throws overall Don Casey is optimistic about the team's performance after everybody returns from injury. He says, quote, Everything looks good on paper so far. That's a plus. Now they have to get it done on the court. And so the over-under win total for this team is set at 40.5. I think that's pretty fair. If Jason Williams comes back on time, they'll go over. If not, they'll go under. Pretty simple. The roster's got some good players on it, but they really can't get it done on their own. They need Jason Williams to be the glue. Um, And by the way, we do have three New Jersey Nets games on the schedule this season, including one game in the first few weeks. So look forward to seeing Stephon Marbury play some of his best basketball this side of Beijing, baby. Next up, the Washington Wizards, who are going to be pretty interesting this season, I think. I won't say why just yet, but it it is going to come up pretty soon chronologically. They are coached by Gar Hurd. It is his first season in Washington. They hired him off the Pistons bench where he was an assistant coach. Like with Don Casey in New Jersey, it's not Hurd's first head coaching experience. He was the interim head coach of the Dallas Mavericks in 94. And he's been in a, a ton of head coaching conversations for a while now, throughout the late 90s. He's interviewed for you know a bunch of jobs. Hurd is the full-time replacement for Bernie Bickerstaff, who, by the way, was the uh, final head coach of the Washington Bullets. And so I wanted to tell you why the Washington Bullets became the Washington Wizards. So Bullets had a negative connotation in light of a rise in homicides by firearms in the area in the early 90s, specifically in the district, but also in the DMV as a whole. That's the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. But the tipping point for Abe Pollan, who was the owner of the Washington Bullets, was that his good friend, the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated in Tel Aviv in 1995. So the Bullets set about rebranding, and the five finalists for a new name were revealed to the public for them to vote on. So they were the Washington Sea Dogs, Washington Express, Washington Stallions, Washington Dragons, and Washington Wizards. Nobody really liked any of the names because none of them had any connection to the actual city, but Wizards won. I actually kind of like the name and the logo both. The logo is a warlock holding a basketball with a, a crescent moon basketball. I think it's fun. I think there need to be more... Mystical team names like the Las Vegas Vampires, the Kansas City Bigfoots, the Seattle succubus. But Bernie Bickerstaff was fired midway through his third season in Washington. The Wizards were 13 and 19, and general manager Wes Unseld, once a an all-time great Washington bullet, let him go, told the Washington Post, quote, I felt it was not working as far as my viewing of the games. I don't want to make this sound like it was something I snapped and did. Bernie and I had a number of conversations over the past few weeks. I was looking for some things to happen. I feel they didn't happen, so I decided to do what I did. And furthermore, Unseld said that Bickerstaff was upset when Unseld told him that he would be dismissed, but Unseld said he believed Bickerstaff was not surprised. And the two had been good friends for over 20 years. So it was a difficult decision that Unseld had to make, a difficult conversation to have, but it was necessary because the team just was not very good. The Wizards finished the season with an 18 and 32 record and were 18th in offense, 21st in defense. And with the amount of great and highly paid players on the roster, that that is a massive disappointment. I mean, they had Juwan Howard of the Fab Five, the first player to sign a $100 million contract after his second season where he was an all-star, putting up 22 points, 8 rebounds, and 4.5 and assists. And by the way, Howard tried to leave Washington and wound up signing an illegal contract in Miami and had to go back to Washington with his, his tail tucked between his legs and ask for a big contract after he spurned them, thankfully. For him, they offered him one, but the story goes that the Miami Heat had miscalculated their available cap space due to some likely bonuses in PJ Brown and Tim Hardaway's contracts that they had erroneously marked as unlikely bonuses. If you choose to believe that, that is totally fine, but long story short, Howard agreed to the contract that put Miami over the salary cap. The deal was later voided by the NBA, so Howard returned to Washington saying that was actually where he had wanted to be all along. And again, if you choose to believe that, that's fine. Now his numbers have dropped off since his All Star season. He says he's not the go-to guy, and it's uh, something that is at peace with. I personally would want the guy who's making three times the amount that anyone else on the team is making to be the go-to guy. Again, that's just me. But he is providing leadership, and you know, doing things that are necessary to win games, play super hard. But the wins just aren't coming, whether he's scoring or not. Howard had made the playoffs once. To this point in his career, in 1997, they were swept in the first round by the Bulls. It was a competitive sweep, but it was a sweep nonetheless. In addition to Howard, they had Mitch Richmond, one of the best shooting guards of all time, still putting up 20 points per game at age 33. He tried to leave Washington for Miami in this offseason, eventually re-signed. Rod Strickland as uh, one of the greatest players never to make an all-star team, a great point guard. He had been holding out all training camp until he got an extension, eventually got one. And then Otis Thorpe, who I have Vancouver-related beef with, but he's a great big man, and an all-star for the Houston Rockets back in the day, the starting power forward alongside Hakeem Olajuwon for the Rockets' championship in 94, traded for Clyde Drexler before he could win his second title in 95. Thorpe is in his late 30s, but he's still very good as well. So in 99, they they had talent, but still only won 18 games out of 50. And a big reason for that, according to their new head coach, Gar Heard, is that they had zero self-confidence as a group. The second something went wrong, things snowballed out of control. He said he had noticed it when he coached against them in Detroit, something they tried really, really hard to exploit. So what did the Wizards do in the 99 offseason to try to move forward and improve from such a dismal season? Unfortunately, they did not do very much. If, if they were a little bit top-heavy in 99, they were going to tip over in the year 2000 because Jawan Howard, Mitch Richmond, Rod Strickland, and Otis Thorpe combined for almost two-thirds of Washington's total points scored in 99. They got very little contributions off the bench. They traded four of those bench players to the Orlando Magic for a guy named Isaac Austin, who, you know, he's fine. He's a He's a starter quality center in the NBA. Kind of fell off a little bit in his one year in Orlando. But maybe that's a regression to the mean, because he played really, really well for the two years prior, out of nowhere. He won Most Improved Player in 1997 in Miami when he stepped in for an injured Alonzo Mourning. And in 14 starts, averaged 15 points and 8 rebounds to go 10-4 and in that stretch and power the Heat to a 61-win season. And that was incredible given that he had eaten himself out of the league in the early 90s, didn't last his first three seasons in Utah or Philadelphia. Had to play in France and Turkey for two years to slim down a little bit and get his stock back up before the Miami Heat gave him a chance. And he made them look like geniuses. Now, in the 1998 offseason, he was up for a big payday, and the Heat could not afford him, so they traded him to the Los Angeles Clippers. He left the Clippers for the Magic in free agency. And then after one season in Orlando, as we'll talk about soon, they're tearing things down, so the Wizards got Austin for Jeff McInnes, ESPN's Tim Legler. Terry Davis and Ben Wallace. Terry Davis and Ben Wallace were the first and second string centers on the roster, and then McInnes and Legler were backup guards. Ben Wallace obviously is the best player in that deal, but at the time he wasn't regarded as you know a, a Defensive Player of the Year or All-Star Caliber player. He was just kind of a, a bench rebounder and shot blocker. And then Otis Thorpe unfortunately left for Miami. Calbert Chaney, who had spent his entire career in Washington to that point after being drafted 6th in 93, had the worst season of his career in 99, played so poorly that the Wizards had to play Juwan Howard out of position at the 3 to cover for Chaney. He's off to Boston in free agency. Ike Austin was the Wizards' main acquisition this offseason, but they did have a draft pick, which they used on Richard Rip Hamilton, a shooting guard from Yukon. He was their 7th pick in the draft. And he is a huge scorer, and so they really need Hamilton to come in and hit the ground running and add some bench scoring, because their main wing off the bench, a guy named Tracy Murray, went from one of the best years of his career in 98 to one of the worst in 99. In 98, he had 15 points per game on 56% true shooting. In 99, 6.5 points per game on 46% true shooting. 10 percentage point decrease in true shooting, 8.5 point per game drop. That is horrible. Tracy Murray was one of the single best three-pointers in the league in 1996 in Toronto, which is what got him a nice long-term deal in Washington, but he seems to have lost that juice that he had. If he can regain it, that's great for Washington. They had no bench scoring whatsoever in 99. The only good bench player was Ben Wallace, who, as we all know, is a a zero offensively. So Rod Strickland is going to start at point guard. Mitch Richmond is going to start shooting guard juan howard should start at power forward and then ike austin at the center tracy murray's a bench guy rip hamilton's a rookie so who is going to start at small forward for the washington wizards well there's a guy that the wizards signed in october after he was waived by the orlando magic his name is michael smith he's a fantastic rebounder doesn't do too much else he can rebound he's a six foot eight guy who historically hasn't even played small forward too much in the nba mostly it's a four with some small ball five thrown in in his sacramento days but the wizards are going to roll with him at the three like ben Wallace. he's a zero on offense but he can rebound he doesn't take the ball out of the hands of of richmond or howard so they're going to roll with him Chris Whitney is going to reprise his role as the backup point guard on the Wizards. He's been in town since 95. Jahidi White is a backup center, a local guy from Georgetown, entering a second season in the NBA. So that is the projected rotation. Strickland, Richmond, Michael Smith, Howard, Ike Austin, Whitney, Jahidi White, Rip Hamilton, Tracy Murray off the bench. Now, I mentioned in the Pacific Division episode that many believe that the Strickland and Richmond backcourt is the best in the league. Their main competition for that crowd being Jason Kidd and Penny Hardaway in Phoenix, aka Backcourt 2000. But Strickland and Richmond really didn't play together, really didn't play well together, I should say, in 99. Basically, nobody played well in Washington in 99, though. Of the top 20 two-man lineups by minutes played only six of them were positive and every single one of those six positive lineups by net rating contains one of ben wallace calbert cheney and terry davis all of whom play for division rivals now so if you want to use that information to guess how well the uh, 2000 washington wizards season is going to go you just might end up being correct their over/under win total is set at 35 and a half, so Vegas does not have very much faith in Jawan Howard and Mitch Richmond at all. They don't think the Tracy Murray bounce back season is coming. They don't think Rip Hamilton will be a great rookie. All that stuff is only going to give them the equivalent of six more wins in a full 82 game season. 18 and 32 roughly equates to 30 and 52, by the way. But we will be checking in on the Wizards. Uh, got two games of theirs so far in the queue one of them is very very timely for something cool that's happening this season for them but we'll be talking about them and most teams in the league just about every week though on this show so we're gonna move on to the boston celtics the fightin rick patinos they are infamously coached by and presided over by rick patino who is entering his third season in both jobs he is very bad at both jobs i'll spare you a full breakdown of you know each transaction he's ever made but he just makes a lot of really short-sighted and dumb moves for example in the middle of the 99 season patino felt that they needed to upgrade their center position they were hovering around 500 they were seven and nine they were flip-flopping between starting tony battee and eric riley at center so patino traded their backup center andrew de to cleveland for their center the ukrainian Vitali potapenko they also threw in their first round pick that year and potapenko started every game going forward for the celtics averaged about 11.7 rebounds not bad not lighting the world on fire either. And from that trade onward, the Celtics went 12-22 and 22 and gave Cleveland the eighth pick in the draft. And, you know, Cleveland got their apparent point guard of the future, Andre Miller, out of that deal. Now, Patapinko is not a great rebounder or defender despite his massive size, so the trade was basically a complete waste of a first-round pick. And Patino completely did not give a fuck about losing out on more talent in the draft. He said he, quote, doesn't need more rookies, no matter how talented. And I'm sure Celtics fans loved opening up the Boston Globe and reading that when their team was horrible, and the only glimmer of a a future that they had was because of their young players. But anyway, uh, Patino had been the Knicks head coach in the 88 and 89 seasons, was 90 and 74 overall in New York, left New York to take the Kentucky job after three Final Fours and a championship in Lexington, some time on TV during draft season, and his name being... Floated in rumors every time a high profile head coaching job opened up. Patino took the Celtics job. He's the head coach and the president. So far, the Celtics have gone 55 and 77 in two seasons with Patino at the helm. And his first season in town, the 98 season, honestly was not that bad. Uh, the Celtics wound up 12th in the East, but they were within striking distance of the playoffs with two weeks left in the season before losing most of the games to end the season. But 99 was a different story. They were not close to playoff contention at all for the last month and a half of the three-month abbreviated season. Now, you could say that outside of the Rick Pitino personality in charge of the Celtics, this team was kind of just a, a run-of-the-mill bad team, and for the most part, I'd agree with you. They are kind of a boring team on the court in terms of like names on the roster, uh, but there is one exception to that, and that is a rookie out of Kansas that plummeted down draft boards until the scoop. Until the Celtics scooped him up at number 10. That is Paul Pierce, who would have been Rookie of the Year many other years, if not for Vince Carter's stellar rookie year. Paul Pierce was outstanding for Boston in 99, 16.5 points, 6.5 rebounds, 2.5 stocks, 41% from 3 on high volume, played great defense. He just did it all for Boston to the point that some of their older players on the Celtics started to get a little nervous about their playing time and their futures in Boston. In his rookie season, he played mostly small forward, but he will play some shooting guard as well in the upcoming season. He's much bigger than opposing shooting guards and faster than the typical small forward. So he he really is just a fantastic get. For the Celtics. They're really lucky that he fell down draft boards in the 98 draft. The reason for which being that the Vancouver Grizzlies passing on Pierce and picking Mike Bibby instead made other bad teams worried that maybe there was something wrong with him and not having time to uh do their research, they just passed on him and went to other players instead. Will he make those other teams pay with a long Hall of Fame career? We shall see. I do wish he'd gone to Vancouver, though. That would have been great. So Paul Pierce looks like the future for Boston. The Celtics have identified another one of their young players they wanted to move forward with between Ron Mercer and Antoine Walker, two guys that Rick Pitino coached at Kentucky, two NCAA champions at Kentucky in 96. Ron Mercer is the one who ended up getting traded. The Celtics then-general manager Chris Wallace, who I mostly associate with being Memphis' GM, and doing everything he could do to help the Celtics. Wallace spearheaded the campaign to trade Mercer to Denver to get back Eric Williams and Danny Fortson, both of whom I'll talk about later, and then keep Antoine Walker instead of trading him. So their star young players are a wing in Pierce and a power forward in Antoine Walker. Now Antoine Walker is a very good player. It's not a bad choice that they made, but he's butting heads a little bit with his college coach Rick Patino. Patino has challenged Walker to shoot less and rebound more coming into his fourth season. Walker had an all-star season in 98 where he averaged and half points, 10 rebounds, followed that up with 18.5 points and 8.5 rebounds in his third season. So some slight downgrades in the box score stats. That's not super concerning on its face given that Pierce was a major contributor. Plus his assists and his stocks stayed uh, relatively similar. His three-point shooting improved. He did start jacking threes at a much higher rate. But Walker was booed at home for his selfish play and for showing up to training camp out of shape after the long lockout. And so he's been referred to in the Boston media as the anti-Pierce because Pierce is so selfish, still gets things done on the court. So between being booed at home and being told by Patino to sacrifice some glory to help the team win games, he's really just not happy. You simply don't want to hear from the guy who just got a six-year $71 million contract extension. So Walker needs to bounce back a little bit mentally. His play on the court is still pretty good, but he he needs to become more of a team player and buy in. Butting heads with Patino is not going to help that. What's also not going to help is that the Celtics starting point guard, Kenny Anderson, the former number two pick by the Nets out of Georgia Tech in 91, is also not being a team player. You don't want that out of your point guard. He said it's, quote, ridiculous to expect him to defer to anybody on the team, even recent all-star Antoine Walker or wonderkind Paul Pierce doesn't matter that it's been like six seasons since Kenny Anderson was an all-star and in 99 he averaged 12 points and six assists. Kenny Anderson will not play a secondary role on the team that he was just traded to at the deadline in 98 because he was playing so badly in Portland that even the Toronto Raptors didn't want him when they traded for him and then they traded him five days later to Boston. Does that sound like the kind of guy who should take a backseat and let younger, better players on the team do their thing? No, you know, we're in agreement there. But anyway, outside of Kenny Anderson, Paul Pierce, Antoine Walker, and Vitaly Potapenko, who are some other current Celtics? So I mentioned Tony Petit as a starting center for part of the time in 99 before Potapenko was acquired. He's expected by some to start at power forward at least a little bit, but he'll actually just be backup center again, which is a role he does really well in. He's been an excellent rim protector in short bursts and will continue on in that role this year. He's entering his third season, by the way. For Batee to start at power forward, Pierce and Walker would both have to play kind of out of position. So instead, they're going to keep Pierce at the three to start off and keep Walker at the four. They're going to throw rookie Adrian Griffin, who's now the Milwaukee Bucks head coach, into the starting lineup at the shooting guard position. And that's kind of cool for him. He was an undrafted free agent out of Seton Hall, picked up by the Miami Heat, but never played for them in the 99 season. So he's actually going to play his first NBA game and start for the celtics in their season opener against the Raptors as like an undrafted free agent who it's been a couple years since he was in college that's great for him so the projected starting lineup of anderson griffin pierce walker and potopinko off the bench will be betty the shot blocker dana barros who's a backup point guard who can just shoot the lights out from three he's a boston native and a boston college alum eric williams and danny Fortson, both of whom came over from the nuggets eric williams is a wing who had a fantastic second season for the celtics back in 97 he was their fourth pick in the draft in 95 he was traded to the nuggets where he started off great 20 points per game unfortunately that was in four games because he almost immediately tore his acl and although he is back on the court he isn't really the same only seven inefficient points per game in the 99 season for denver But Williams is back in Boston, hoping to regain some of the mojo that he had his first time around. And if not, the Celtics did sign Calbert Chaney away from Washington. So if if a change in scenery doesn't work out for Eric Williams, maybe it will for Calbert Chaney, who, as I mentioned in the Wizards section, had the worst year of his career in 99. And then Danny Fortson comes in from Denver as a really high potential bench power forward. In two seasons in Denver, he averaged about 10.5 points per game, eight rebounds. And in 99, he really, really exploded as a rebounder. He was the best offensive rebounder in the league in 99, 4.2 per game, despite being six foot eight and matched up against opposing centers who were much taller than him. He also led the league in fouls, averaged 4.2 offensive rebounds, 4.2 fouls per game in 99, leading the league in both. Now, Fortson unfortunately has a stress fracture in his right foot and just had surgery for it in mid-October, so he'll probably miss the first to 8-12 weeks of the season. But he'll be needed off the bench with Potapenko's relative rebounding woes, so uh, a quick return would be nice for the Celtics. Fortson is considered to be a Nets, Jason Williams-type, persistent rebounder, which is a a very high compliment, as I talked about in the Nets section. And then one other guy who may play some is Wayne Turner, who's a two-time NCAA champion from Kentucky, a former Patino player and a Boston native who was an undrafted free agent, but the, uh, the Kentucky and the Boston connections mean that he may end up getting some playing time there. Overall, the team has a pretty good amount of talent on it. Paul Pierce says that the season will be a failure if the Celtics don't make the playoffs. The over-under win total is set at 36.5 wins, and if Patina were a better coach or executive, you may have some faith in this team to go over that and maybe even make the playoffs, but he's not, so it's kind of hard. To imagine them having some massive improvement over the equivalent of a thirty-one win season in '99, but at the time you may have believed in them anyway with the the rookie season that Paul Pierce had. Uh, I, I can imagine a Boston fan seeing how well regarded Toronto is coming into this season and think to themselves, "Well, why isn't Boston thought? Well, let me do it. Why isn't Boston? I'm joking. Why isn't Boston thought of as a playoff team when Pierce had a, a great rookie season like Vince Carter had?" The main difference between the Raptors and the Celtics is the supporting cast around the star young player. The Raptors did a really great job surrounding Vince Carter and, you know, thus far Rick Pitino just has not. The bigs alone, Vitaly Potopinko and Antoine Walker are not Charles Oakley and Antonio Davis, that's for sure. The Raptors group, I, I would expect to snatch every rebound out of the Boston group's hands, but you know what? Boston and Toronto is actually the season opener for the Celtics, so maybe I'll be proven wrong. We're, We're not watching that game, but we are watching a Celtics game in the coming weeks, so look forward to that. All right. I have a simple request for you guys. Let me hear you say, Go New York, go New York, go! Go New York, go New York, go! That's right. We are New York. We are the New York Knicks. The Knicks are coached once again by Jeff Van Gundy, the longtime Knicks assistant, who was elevated to the head coaching position in the middle of the 95-96 season, the first season post-Pat Riley, who left New York for the Miami Heat. We'll talk about him and them in just a few minutes. Van Gundy succeeded Don Nelson, who I've mentioned before, one of the great coaches in NBA history, but only lasted 59 games in New York before getting fired. Ernie Grunfeld, the Knicks general manager, said that firing Nelson midway through his first season was, quote, made to try to break a downward spiral and get the team ready for the playoffs. The Knicks were 31-17 and on the court, and uh, everything seemed to be going great until they lost five in a row, and eight of 11 games fell from third place right after the All-Star break down to sixth with a loss to the lowly Philadelphia 76ers and that loss was the final straw for the Knicks management. They let him go, promoted Van Gundy. Nelson wasn't getting along with the players either. Anthony Mason and John Starks in particular had complained to Ernie Grunfeld about Don Nelson. Nelson also alleges that he had tried to trade Patrick Ewing to Orlando for Shaquille O'Neal. Patrick Ewing and Orlando, could you, can you even imagine? Who knows what the actual tipping point was, but the publicly stated reason of the 3-8 stretch, good enough for me. So Van Gundy, after taking over in the middle of the 95-96 season, led the Knicks to the second round in his first season at the helm. They lost to the Bulls, led them to the second round again in 97. They lost to the Heat in seven games. In 98, the second round again, they upset the Heat in the first round as a seven seed, but then lost in the second round once again to the Indiana Pacers. Now in the lockout shortened 99 season, things... You know, really, at least in the regular season, they were not going well for the Knicks at all. They had their trademark tough physical defense. They were fourth in defense. but They were 26th in offense, which equates to being the fourth worst. And they did make the playoffs just barely. They were the eighth seed with a 27-23 and 23 record. Things were really, really not looking good for Van Gundy. He was probably going to be fired, according to Sports Illustrated. If the team didn't perform well in the postseason you know, the the team just w- wasn't performing in the postseason to the level that they were expected to, especially in comparison to the Pat Riley era. But then something absolutely amazing, incredible, breathtaking happened. They made the NBA finals completely out of nowhere. They were the first eight seed to make an NBA finals in NBA history. The only other eight seed in NBA history to make the finals has been the Miami Heat. And that happened this past year in 2023. Now, unfortunately for the Knicks, Things went about as well for them against the San Antonio Spurs as things went for the Miami Heat against the Denver Nuggets this past year. They lost in five to the Spurs. Not an overly competitive series, which makes sense. They weren't a great team to begin with. And then on top of that, Patrick Ewing was out for the finals and for most of the Eastern Conference finals against the Pacers, which, of course, made their run to the finals all the more improbable. The Pacers were a great team. Patrick Ewing suffered a partial tear of his left Achilles tendon before Game 2 against the Pacers, which, as you might imagine, is going to have him out for the beginning of the regular season as well, and when he returns, who knows how well he'll play. Uh, He's 37 years old at this point. For all intents and purposes, his career may have ended with that injury that he suffered during warm-ups of Game 2 against the Pacers. He played through the injury because he wasn't actually sure what was wrong, knew something was wrong, but played as much as he could which was 25 minutes, 10 points on 2 of 7 shooting and 3 rebounds, minus 18 plus minus in a 2-point loss, if, if you're a believer in single game plus minus telling you anything. I usually am not, but minus 18 in a 2-point loss, that means something to me. So with that Eastern Conference Finals series uh, tied 1-1, to the Knicks had to put their faith in Alan Houston and Latrell Sprewell and Larry Johnson and the guy who turned out to be the most impactful, Marcus Camby the oft-injured defensive anchor whom the Knicks acquired from the Raptors. Ultimately, although he was old, Patrick Ewing was still one of the best centers in the league at age 36, and so losing him, you know, in the finals proved to be too much for the Knicks, but can be really, really shown in the series against the Pacers. Still coming off the bench, now for Chris Dudley, instead of Ewing, can be averaged 19 points, 12 rebounds, 2.5 steals, and over 3 blocks, nearly 6 stocks per game in that four-game stretch to bury the Pacers and you know, proceed to the NBA Finals for the first time since 1994, where they lost to the Houston Rockets. Now, the run to the Finals, according to Sports Illustrated, did the following four things. Number one, saved Jeff Van Gundy's job. Number two, showed that Latrell Sprewell doesn't choke in the postseason. Very interesting choice of words there. Uh, he only chokes in practice, folks. Number three, allowed Marcus Camby to break out. And number four, showed that the Knicks are good with or without Patrick Ewing. And that last point being true is very important for them moving forward. And, you know, they, they were able to gut out some wins uh, without him. And even though they had a losing record without Ewing in the playoffs, 4-5 and five without him, let's be honest, the Knicks were probably not going to beat the Spurs anyway. So I'd consider those last four games against the Pacers as proof of concept for the Knicks that they're going to be good either way, QED. And that's great because, you know, they aren't going to have Ewing for a little while to start the season until at least January. He, he may retire soon or at the very least leave in free agency soon. The Knicks know that they can move forward with other guys and still remain pretty good. So that's what the Knicks did. They returned almost every player on last year's roster, 11 out of 14, the top nine in minutes, which is everybody who played about 15 minutes or more. And then also Rick Brunson, their bench warming point guard, You guys have heard of Rick Brunson, I'm sure. Uh, And then David Wingate, who's a bench shooting guard. And the guys that they didn't return were Dennis Scott. He actually was traded to Minnesota midseason, so he he wasn't on the playoff roster. And then Ben Davis and Herb Williams, who played a, a grand total of 55 combined minutes on the season. So sorry to say, in the grand scheme of things, not very important. No great loss there. The Knicks added John Wallace, who was a small forward who'd been on the Knicks a few seasons before, spent the last two seasons in Toronto. Andrew Lang, who's a veteran backup center, good to have more center depth. And then they drafted Frederick Weiss, who's a seven foot two French center. Uh, if that name does not sound familiar, Google his name plus Vince Carter. He's a draft and stash guy. And then J.R. Cook, who would never play in the NBA. So they're really moving forward with basically. The exact same team as last year, but with Wallace and Lang in tow as well. They think that this could be a championship-level team once again when they get Ewing back. So here is the main rotation of this team going into the 2000 season. Point guard, Charlie Ward, entering his sixth year as the next point guard, third season as a starter. And Charlie Ward is really notable for having been the Heisman Trophy winner. 27 touchdowns, four interceptions as a senior at Florida State. Won the national championship game against Nebraska, of course also played college basketball. Went undrafted in the NFL draft because he said that he would only play in the NFL if he were a first-round pick. He was also a first-round pick in the NBA by the Knicks in 94, so he was not selected in the NFL draft, never played in the NFL. Joined a Knicks team who had just made the finals, so that's not bad at all. Ward is not like a a big box score guy, let's say 7.5 points per game, 5.5 assists really just sets the table for other guys on the team who are more talented, doesn't get in the way. He's the perfect point guard for this team, to be honest. And his backup is a guy named Chris Child, who was once the Knicks starting point guard uh, in the year 97. The reason that I say that Charlie Ward is the perfect point guard for this team is that he just gets the ball to the the people who need it. The two wings are really where a ton of the scoring comes from. Their numbers, you know, in on the box score look really nice. Uh, the Knicks are a really poor offensive team, so take that with a grain of salt. But Alan Houston, one of the better shooting guards in the league, 16 points, 3 rebounds, 3 assists per game in 99. Very good shooter from 16 feet onward, even into 3-point range. Shoots 44% from long 2 range, which is actually a down year for him. The last two years he was over 49%, and then about 41% from 3. And then Latrell Sprewell, most known for choking his head coach with the Golden State Warriors, P.J. Carlissimo, at practice in 1997. P.J. Carlissimo's offense was telling Latrell Sprewell to, quote, put a little mustard on his passes. So for assaulting his coach, his contract was voided and he was suspended for the remainder of the 97-98 season, 68 games. His contract was later reinstated after he sued the league, but he was traded with two years left on his deal to the Knicks after the lockout. He came off the bench for the Knicks all year, but will be starting in the 99-2000 season. The thing about Latrell Sprewell is that he is incredibly talented on both ends of the floor. Off the bench, he averaged 60.5 points, 4 rebounds, 2.5 assists, and a steal. Just a you know athletic slashing guard, great defender. His career really is just marred by his complete instability and insanity. He's he's kind of what, what people think J.R. Ryder is, honestly. He's very unpredictable. He misses a ton of training camp this year because he was driving from Oakland, California, where he was testifying in a lawsuit that he had picked up while he was suspended from the Warriors, driving from there to Milwaukee, which is his hometown, to see his newborn baby. The Knicks are over his shit already one year into the Latrell-Sprewell experience. The New York Times said, quote, The Knicks' tolerance for Sprewell's behavior is continuing to dissolve. Quote from General Manager Scott Layden, At some point, you have to take disciplinary action, and so I'm just going to leave it at that. Eventually, for missing most of training camp, they fined him $50,000, didn't suspend him even though they wanted to, and reportedly couldn't decide whether they wanted to trade him or extend his contract. So they offered him two different extensions and said, hey, pick one of these, and if you don't want any of them, we'll just trade you somewhere. So Latrell Sprewell picked the five-year, $62 million extension over the two-year version of that deal. So Sprewell is in New York for the foreseeable future, but you know, we'll, we'll keep up to date on his shenanigans all season. Sprewell will be backed up by John Wallace, the guy who's coming back to the Knicks from the Raptors. The big spots are a little shaky. Marcus Camby, who did really well in Ewing's absence, is going to start at center. But outside of the Pacers series, he really hasn't shown that he's ready to be a starting center in the NBA. But he's feeling really confident going into the season. So they're going to roll with him in place of Chris Dudley, who is kind of an exaggerated but less athletic version of Camby. What I mean by that is that he's he's all defense, very little offensive ability. Camby does have some offense at the very least. Chris Dudley, by the way, I'm not trying to say he's not a good basketball player. He started games in the NBA. He was the starter when Ewing went down for a reason. Most of Camby's damage in the playoffs you know, was with Camby coming off the bench. But starting alongside Camby at the four is going to be Larry Johnson, the former number one overall pick by the Charlotte Hornets, a two-time All-Star out of UNLV. He was a 20-10 and 10 power forward in the first few years of his career, but a back injury made him change his play style, which he did. Very successfully, he turned himself into a shooter, developed a pretty reliable jumper. He was like a Zion Williamson type player or, you know, kind of, I guess like a Charles Barkley, you could say. Um, and he, he had to adapt and did so pretty well. And he's been starting for the Knicks since he arrived in New York in a trade where the Hornets got Anthony Mason. And so that's not going to change anytime soon. Backing up Camby and Larry Johnson is going to be the guy who started most of the 99 season at the four, a guy named Kurt Thomas. And when Ewing returns in December or January, he will reclaim the starting center spot. It's just a matter of, you know, when he returns and if he's still good when he returns. The Knicks are hoping to stay afloat without him. They really think that they can, although they open up with 10 of their first 13 games being on the road. That's tough for a team trying to tread water without their star player, but also maybe it's better for Ewing to get some more home games, you know, when he returns. So yeah, it's, it's a balance there. Ewing, by the way, even if he's not still good, uh, he does not want to play a smaller role on the team. But with the other players on the team, namely Allen Houston and Latrell Sprewell, they prefer playing without Ewing, and they don't want to go back to the slow plotting play style. You know, once he's back in the lineup, they want to play up tempo. They don't want to just you know sit in the corner and watch Ewing post up every time up and down the floor and muck up the game, slow it down. So there's some tension there that Jeff Van Gundy is going to have to figure out and you know balance. So. As Van Gundy points out, they were pretty close to losing in the first round. Allen Houston hit a really lucky game winner in Game 5 of the best-of-five first-round series against the Miami Heat. It wasn't quite like Kawhi Leonard versus 76ers level, but it did bounce up and around a few times before going in. But then, you know, they were in the finals, uh, you know, a few things go the other way, and maybe they're winning the title in 99 instead of a young Tim Duncan. So will the Knicks be able to sustain the success that they've had over the last few years, and especially in 94 and 99, maybe even win the championship, or will they collapse and lose early in the playoffs like they almost did against the Miami Heat? Their over-under is 49 and a half, second highest in the East to the Heat. They're expected to be pretty good in the regular season, even with some uncertainty surrounding Ewing. And then they have the best championship odds in the East, again, tied with the Miami Heat. You know, Vegas expects them to be pretty good. So do all the previews that I've read. Will the Knicks be good? We have quite a few Knicks games coming up, so you will get to see with your own eyes and decide for yourself. Let's move on to a really similar team in some respects, albeit not a championship contender in the year 99, but and kind of an all-defense, no-offense team in the Northeast. That's right, it's the Philadelphia Allen Iversons. The 76ers are coached by the nomadic Larry Brown. He's very restless, can't ever stay in one place for too long. So far, he's been the head coach of the ABA's Carolina Cougars for two seasons. The Denver Nuggets, in both the ABA and NBA for five total seasons, nearly won the ABA championship in 76, but lost to Julius Irving's New York Nets. The UCLA Bruins for two seasons, nearly won the NCAA championship, but lost to Louisville in the final game. Then went off to the New Jersey Nets, coached them for two seasons, took over at the University of Kansas, coached in Lawrence for five seasons, made the Final Four in 1986, won the championship in 1988. He and Danny Manning and the other guys defeated Oklahoma in the championship game. Well, that just wasn't enough for Larry Brown to, you know, rest on his laurels. He immediately went to San Antonio to coach the Spurs, took R.C. Buford with him as an assistant coach. Buford, of course, is now the CEO of the Spurs, has been the president and GM as well. And then Larry Brown also brought over another one of his former Kansas assistant coaches, Greg Popovich, as another assistant. So Spurs fans, thank Larry Brown for your team's success. The Spurs were not his final stop, though. After three and a half years in San Antonio, he was fired, immediately hired mid-season by the Clippers, then after one full season in L.A., resigned to take the Pacers job, resigned from the Pacers after four seasons there to take the 76ers job. So in total, from the start of his head coaching career in the early 70s to when he was hired as the Sixers coach, 26 seasons, he's coached in two different pro leagues and college, seven different pro teams and two different colleges, nine total teams in 26 seasons. That's about three years each on average, a, l- a little bit less than that. And so if you know anything about Larry Brown, you know, he's got a lot more wandering to go, but for right now, he is entering his third season as the 76ers head coach. and He, he thinks that he's really unlocked something with Allen Iverson in 99. They made the playoffs for the first time since 91 Charles Barkley's penultimate season in philadelphia upset the orlando magic in the first round the magic were 33 and 17 and the sixers 28 and 22 so it's a 6-3 playoff seed upset now i mentioned the 76ers were pretty similar to the knicks in that they were all defense no offense they were 23rd in offense fifth in defense their entire strategy which they openly admit was to keep the score low keep the game close at the end so they could just have Allen iverson go crazy in the fourth quarter Sports Illustrated called the 76ers Allen Iverson and four guys setting picks for Allen Iverson. That is not far off from reality. Allen Iverson was the scoring champ in 99, led the league at 26.8 points per game, was technically moved out of the point guard position to play shooting guard. The point guard is Eric Snow. Eric Snow's job in 1999 was to pass the ball to Allen Iverson, or sometimes matt geiger or theo ratliff matt geiger was the second leading scorer for the 76ers at 13 and a half points per game he was their starting center in 99 came over from the hornets after the lockout and then ratliff the starting power forward he went for about 11 points per game and he came over from the pistons in the middle of the 98 season he is the best uh, shot blocker on the team and the other starter for the 76ers was george lynch a great defensive small forward who'd played for the Lakers and the Vancouver Grizzlies before coming to Philly. 99 was his first season in town. Now, Thea Ratliff and Matt Geiger, unfortunately, both of them are going to miss the start of the season. Ratliff has a stress fracture of his left leg. Geiger had an arthroscopic surgery done on his left knee, so they're both out for a little while. Ratliff just has a couple more weeks and then Geiger about another month. But the starting lineup would be the same to start the season if not, for those injuries but we are going to see some different big men filling in in the meantime tyrone hill another great defensive role player a little bit of uh, billy owens who's kind of a bust power forward picked number three overall in 1991 but he's somebody who can provide some offense there's some nazi muhammad who's a center who was a rookie last season out of kentucky stole my seat at the sloan conference in 2018 by the way although that is kind of more on my friend matt for giving the seat away and then some rookie todd mcculloch who's a Canadian center from the University of Washington. And then some other guys who will play a lot are Aaron McKee, who's another wing defender to compliment George Lynch. Bruce Bowen, who came over from Boston in the offseason, he's a great wing defender as well to compliment George Lynch. So yeah, this team is returning a ton of players from last year, each of the top eight in minutes played, plus Nazi Muhammad. And the guy that I'm saving for last, his development is going to be the most important thing for the 76ers this year, Larry Hughes. He was the 76ers' eighth pick in the 98 draft. He's a second year player out of St. Louis, a six foot five swingman, great athlete, great defender. 76ers view Larry Hughes as the pippin to Allen Iverson's Michael Jordan. Those are their words, not mine. He and Iverson are affectionately referred to as the Flight Brothers. Hughes catches a ton of lobs from Iverson. They want him to become the secondary scoring threat on the 76ers this year one to take some pressure off of Iverson but two because they think that he has that kind of potential he was pretty good in his rookie season nine points and four rebounds per game averaged about 20 minutes per game playing in all 50 games they're hoping to take the training wheels off at some point this season and let him play a ton alongside Iverson I and mean, Iverson will be playing about 40 minutes a night is the plan every minute that they're on the floor together Iverson is going to be asked to defer to Hughes and rack up assists, play the pure point guard role instead of scoring guard, conserve some energy for the uh, down the stretch of the game. So the plan for the season is for Larry Hughes to explode on offense, relieve some pressure off of Iverson. That was the thought in acquiring Billy Owens as well. All the while keeping up the great defense, which was the thought in acquiring Bruce Bowen and you know retaining all of the great defenders on the team. So in 1999, nobody on the team, including Iverson. Was very efficient. They were very, very slow. The whole offensive strategy is to just let Iverson dribble the air out of the ball and chuck up a ton of shots. They're expected to be about the same this year as they were last year. Their over under is 42 and a half games. But Iverson has a ton of confidence in Larry Hughes and says that if he's able to give them a second scoring threat, the 76ers can be a championship contender sooner rather than later. But for this year, it's going to be another kind of not necessarily building year because they are a playoff team, but you know, another year where they're improving over last year, but not really getting up to the highest heights. Getting Larry Hughes, who's only a second year player, by the way, more confident and allowing him to grow into the new role that they're planning for him is kind of the thesis statement of the season. But I'll repeat the projected rotation for the team here. Eric Snow at the point, Allen Iverson at the two, George Lynch at the three, Thea Ratliff and Matt Geiger as the bigs. And then off the bench, Tyrone Hill, Larry Hughes, Aaron McKee, Every one of those guys, save for Iverson, is, at worst, like a good defender. While steals don't always correlate to good defense, Iverson does average a ton of steals. Now, fittingly, we have six 76ers games to watch this season, including one pretty early on, so we will be able to check in on them and on Larry Hughes's progress throughout the year, and I guarantee that will be an interesting story, so look forward to that. All right, the Orlando Magic. They were a playoff team in 99. They had the third-best defense in the league in 99 they were tied for the best record in the east in 99 they had a hall of fame coach coaching them in 99 chuck daly of the bad boy pistons in 2000 they are expected to be the worst team in the eastern conference so what happened to the orlando magic they traded basically everybody on their entire team the catalyst was that chuck daly retired they would not have done what they did if chuck daly had not retired But the Magic were really similar to the Knicks and the 76ers in 99. They were 21st in offense, third in defense, tied for the best record in the East. Had, you know, some great players like Penny Hardaway, Horace Grant, Nick Anderson. But they lost in the first round to the Philadelphia 76ers, and Chuck Daly retired. Now, the Magic's GM, John Gabriel, said that, uh, quote, Looking back, I felt as though we were closer to the team that lost to Philly than we were for the team that tied for the best record in the East. That meant looking very hard at some changes, but none of us expected the number of changes we ended up making. So how many changes did did they make, you may ask? Well, in total, they made 24 transactions that involved 32 players. They kept five players from the 99 team. Darrell Armstrong, a, a point guard who was a late bloomer, super fast, athletic guy. He was sixth man of the year and most improved in 99. Michael Doliak, who's a center, Matt Harpering, who's a small forward, and then they kept two power forwards, Bo Outlaw and Derek Strong. And then in the month of August, they went absolutely crazy. They traded away Horace Grant and two second rounders. They got back in return Dale Ellis, Don McLean, Corey McGetty, and Billy Owens. They traded away Nick Anderson. They received back Tariq Abdul-Wahad and a first round pick. They traded away Penny Hardaway. They got back Pat Garrity, Danny Manning, and two first-round picks. They traded away Ike Austin. And they got back Terry Davis, Tim Legler, Jeff McInnes, and Ben Wallace. They traded away Billy Owens and got Harvey Grant and Anthony Parker. They traded away Dale Ellis and Danny Manning and got back Chris Gatling and Armin Gilliam. They traded away Don McLean a first-rounder, and a second-round pick, and got back Lee Mayberry, Mokhtar Njai, Roderick Rose, and Michael Smith. That was facilitating the Steve Francis trade between Houston and Vancouver. And then they traded away Laron Profit, and they got back a second-rounder. So in total, they sent out nine players, one first-round pick, and three second-round picks. They got, in return, 18 total players, three first-round picks, and one second-round pick. Only five of the 18 guys that they acquired ever played a minute for the Orlando Magic. Tariq Abdul-Wahad, Pat Garrity, Chris Gatling, Corey McGetty, and Anthony Parker. They waived Michael Smith, he went to the Wizards, Roderick Rhodes, he went to the Mavericks, Jeff McInnes, he went to the Clippers, Terry Davis, he went nowhere. They signed Monty Williams, who's a journeyman now, of course, the Detroit Pistons head coach, Chucky Atkins, undrafted rookie point guard from University of South Florida, John Amache, center who had been playing in Europe for the past few years after his opening stint on the Cleveland Cavaliers didn't work out. And their new head coach, by the way, I haven't mentioned him yet. It's Doc Rivers. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a rookie head coach, has been a TNT broadcaster since he retired from the Spurs in 96. He was in the running for you know a few different jobs over the years. Vancouver Grizzlies head coach, Milwaukee Bucks general manager, but waited, stayed a broadcaster for a, f- a couple seasons. Took on the magic job in 99, was not consulted on the moves that John Gabriel made at all. So he was never truly sure who was going to be on the team when the season started. Now, I mentioned five guys who were kept from the 99 roster and, you know, a, a million guys who were acquired in the trades. There was one single guy that at this point in the rebuild they considered to be untouchable and considered to be a definite part of the future. That is Corey Maggette, a rookie weighing out of Duke that the Magic got from the Sonics for Horace Grant. He was the 13th pick in 99. He only really fell that far because he was a Duke freshman that came off the bench. Maggette wants to make an instant impact. He'll be brought along slowly. He shows you know, flashes of excellence, flashes of youth. That's expected for a guy who's going to turn 20 years old in the first couple weeks of the season. The Magic absolutely love this guy. They think he'll be a centerpiece of the next great Orlando Magic team. But what was the point of acquiring a million different guys over the course of the offseason if none of them are going to be a part of the next great Magic team? Well, almost none of them are going to be on the next Magic team in the 2001 season. The Magic prioritized getting a ton of players whose contracts were expiring in the 2000 offseason so that they could release their free agent rights the second that the new league year started and use the resulting cap space to sign whatever big name free agent is willing to take their money. Their sights are set on Grant Hill and Tim Duncan at this point, much like the Chicago Bulls. And so the plan for the 99-2000 season is to just kind of like be a team that exists in the league and then use their cap space later. Now, to be honest, there are too many uncertain things with this team to try to project how they may do in the season. It's totally rational to think that they will not be good. That's the expectation. Their over-under win total is set at 29.5. Basically, every source that I'm seeing is like, oh, well, of course they're going to suck. They're going to be the worst team in the East. That makes sense, it's basically just a mix of a ton of random players, it's like an expansion team, but ideally... They will play very fast. Doc Rivers wants them to play like the, the 80s Celtics, push the ball a lot. He wants tempo, defensive-focused team. You've got Darrell Armstrong, who's very fast. Bo Outlaw and Derek Strong are good defensive players. They're all extra effort players. Matt Harpring and and uh, Michael Doliak were rookies last year, which the, the Magic were pretty happy with their progress in their rookie seasons. Pat Garrity and Tariq abdul Wahad could be good scorers. But it's really just hard to tell what's going to happen with such an amalgam of players. Who's going to be, you know, the the player that steps up and becomes really good. So I'm just going to straight up tell you what their rotation is going to be in the first little bit of the season, because the magazine and the newspaper projections are all wrong. I like to say, you know, for most teams that I've been previewing, this is what's expected to happen. I don't want to tell you something that is completely wrong. So I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. Because there's too much uncertainty with this team. So Darrell Armstrong is going to be the starting point guard. He's one of John Gabriel's favorite players. He, he blossomed so much so late. By the time he was 27 years old, he'd played in 16 total NBA games. In his age 30 season, which was 99, he won most improved player and sixth man of the year. So he, he's just a great story. At the two, Tariq Abdul Wahad. He is a French guy who was born Olivier Saint Jean, changed his name in 97 when he converted to Islam. He played one year of college at Michigan, two at San Jose State, came over from the Sacramento Kings in a trade. He's a six foot six wing who was a starter for the Kings in the 99 season. So he, he's a great pickup for the Magic. He's still young. He's going to be 25 this season. Bo Outlaw is going to play the three. He's kind of out of position for a six foot eight guy who's played mostly power forward in his career but ben wallace is going to play the four we all know how great ben wallace is so you know he's worth shifting somebody out of position and then entering his second year in the league michael doliak is going to start at the five they'll play a ton of different players every game 11 to 12 guys in most of the games for the first half of this year Will they be any good? It's really hard to know. They've got a ton of guys. Somebody's got to score points. Somebody's got to rebound. Somebody's got to block shots. You have to assume. But the Magic, for you know one reason or another, are really, really interesting this year and in the next year. So we're going to check in on them a ton. Unfortunately, Orlando Magic games are pretty hard to come by online from this time period, so we just have two games of theirs on the docket so far, but I will try to add a few more. I know that this preview was kind of short, not very specific. There's just too much up in the air with this team for me to preview them in in any way other than saying they don't really know what's going to happen over the course of the season. They're really just looking forward to the summer with all the millions of dollars they're going to free up and, you know, all the roster turnover that they're going to have in the 2000 offseason. And last but not least, we have the juggernaut of the conference, the Miami Heat, upset in the first round by the eighth seeded New York Knicks. They've lost to their head coach Pat Riley's old team in the first round each of the last two years. That's got to hurt for Pat Riley. Now, we all know Pat Riley. He's entering his fifth year with the Heat at this point, but I'll give you a breakdown of his resume at this point. 1972 NBA champ as a player with the Lakers, four-time NBA champ as a coach with the Lakers, in 82 85 87 and 88 led the knicks to four consecutive 50 win seasons then came to miami in 95 transformed them into contenders alongside his crew of tough guys like alonzo morning the heat have won this atlantic division three years running including last year when they were 33 and 17 ninth in offense and eighth in defense this past year they were tied for first place in the east with the magic and the pacers But despite winning the division three years in a row, they've lost to the Bulls in 97 and then the Knicks in 98 and 99. So you may think something's got to change, right? Well, not too much has changed in Miami. Just some marginal changes, but the Heat are returning 10 players from last year's squad, including eight of their top 10 in minutes played and their entire starting lineup, which consists of Tim Hardaway Sr., the dynamic point guard with the killer crossover, five-time all-star. Dan Marley, an aging shooting guard, who was an all-star three times in Phoenix in the mid-90s. He's going to be 34 this season, though, which is, of course, unimaginably old. Jamal Mashburn, he's a high-scoring small forward. P.J. Brown, a stud defensive power forward. He was second-team all-defense for the second time in his career in 99. And then the guy who really makes everything tick, the reigning defensive player of the year, six foot ten out of Georgetown, Alonzo Mourning, 20 points per game, 11 rebounds, 4 blocks in the 99 season four-time All-Star, an absolute monster, one of the players I'm most excited to watch in the upcoming season. And we do have five Miami Heat games on the schedule, by the way. Their big loss, I'd say, is Terry Porter, who is their backup point guard. He's a really solid player, even at his advanced age. But they actually have a pretty good replacement in Anthony Carter, who was an undrafted free agent out of the University of Hawaii. And he was one of their two notable free agent acquisitions, the other being Otis Thorpe, who's coming over from the Wizards. He'll hit the court soon. Unfortunately, before the start of the season, he fractured his thumb, so that is going to hold him out for a little bit. He's a pretty physical player, so if he can't go all out while he's on the court, that really kind of hampers his effectiveness. So he's going to be out for a little while. And Anthony Carter and Otis Thorpe are going to join some guys like Clarence Weatherspoon, a.k.a. Baby Barkley. He was, as I like to say, the successor to Charles Barkley in size and spirit in Philadelphia. He played kind of similar to Chuck, mostly was just a round guy. He was the 76ers best player in the time between. Charles Barkley, and Allen Iverson. He's just finishing up his first season in Miami. Eight points and five rebounds per game off the bench. And then Vashon Lennard is a shooting guard who will back up Dan Marley. So that's most of their rotation. Some other guys like Rex Walters, Mark Strickland, and Dwayne Coswell, aka the Cosinator, will fill in the gaps, but they won't play too many minutes. This preview is short and sweet too, though. This team didn't do too much in the offseason and has extremely high expectations it's pretty straightforward. There's not much guesswork involved. They have the talent. They don't have any major injuries to important guys right now. The question is simply, can they get it done in the postseason? They'll win enough games in the regular season to put themselves in a good position. They just have to go deep in the playoffs this season. They're, they're too talented not to do so, it appears. Of course, that's why they played the games, but their over-under is set at 51 and a half wins, which is first in the East, tied in championship odds with the Knicks. They and the Knicks are, you know, the one A and one B of this conference with the Indiana Pacers, not too far behind them. Most likely it's going to come down to one of those three teams, the Heat Pacers and Knicks, in the finals versus one of the Lakers, Blazers, and Spurs. But even in the East and West Finals, I mean, you think about, you know, there's three kind of big dogs in each conference. One of the Knicks, Heat, Pacers are going to lose before they get to the to the conference finals. One of the Lakers, Blazers, and Spurs are going to lose before they get to the conference finals. It's crazy, but there's so much talent in the league in the ninety nine two thousand season. It's very similar to nowadays. That you know, it feels like in this twenty three twenty four season, you know, there's just an absolutely insane amount of talent all of a sudden in the league, much more than than last year even. And there are a lot fewer just absolute dog shit teams nowadays. Um, and that, that's kind of how this 99-2000 season feels. I counted them up. There are 14 teams that I think are like really, really good in 99-2000. The Knicks, the Heat, and the 76ers being three of them. So this podcast is going to be really, really fun, really interesting. I can't wait to see where we go with this. I say we, because as you know, I value listener input. If you have an idea that you think will make this show better, please let me know. And if I like it, I'll incorporate it into the show. So, you know, reach out to me on social media, at Pod on TikTok, at NBA on all other platforms, Instagram, Twitter. Next episode's going to come out pretty shortly. As I mentioned earlier, Um going to come out between the 2nd and the 6th. That's coming up. And I hope you'll enjoy it starting, uh, you know, within the next week, we'll be watching some games together. So uh, yeah, I'm going to call it a day. Have a good one.